Welcome to the Jeff Gross Podcast. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Party Poker. Go to PartyPoker.com to play tournaments, cash games, and improve your poker game. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear all of my future episodes. All right, welcome everyone. We are joined by Miss Maria Konnikova, correct? Konnikova. Yes, yes that Konnikova. is correct. Uh, I, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you. I am very, very honored. This is a lot of fun because of your, we battled at the table a lot. I've known you for a couple of years now and it's been fun to, uh, to see your journey in poker. So um, thank you for coming and please introduce yourself to everyone if they're not sure who you are, because you are kind of new to poker in, in some sense. This is true. This is true. So thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Um, it's a pleasure to see you not sitting to my direct left at a poker tournament. So, so this is this is much nicer. Yes, um, we have played a lot. Actually, we I mean, have. Yeah, strangely enough, we would seem like whenever <laughs> live, which isn't a ton, get to play. It seems like you're always right there. And we were there was a stretch where we were at the same table for uh, a good a good bit. So um, yeah, nice to nice to chat. <laughs> Just chat, but um, please, yeah, let us know. Give us a little bit of background about yourself, and uh, and and before we dive into yeah. book and everything. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, in my past life, I was a full-time writer, um, and I have a PhD in psychology. So that's something that I'd done, but I never was in academia. Um, so always wrote full-time. Um, was at the New Yorker for the last big chunk of my career, and then decided to go on leave from the New Yorker um, to write a book about poker and enter the world of poker. And so for the last three years, I I never actually expected to go pro or anything like that. It was just going to be like a year where I learned the ropes, get trained by Eric Seidel, um, who I don't think needs introduction to the people who listen to your channel. Um, And that was going to be it. Then I was going to write a book. Um, and I ended up falling down a bit of a rabbit hole, um, falling in love with the game, realizing that um, I had some talent for the game as well, um, working really hard and um, winning some stuff and eventually actually joining Poker Stars Team Pro, where you and I officially met. Um, and then playing full time for a few years. Yeah, it's it's very cool. I actually see your first ever cash your live was a final yeah. table. I think again ninety seven or eight percent of the, of my guests who who do play poker, they their first one was a final table. So it looks like you got the uh the you got a, you got kind of excited right away, right? You know, maybe if you hadn't cashed or if you you know didn't have a good finish, maybe you wouldn't have gotten so into it. But it's kind of addicting. It's fun when you get have a good result. And get to the final, <laughs> yeah, um, my first ever cash I actually won, and it's not on the Hendon mob because it was a daily at Planet Hollywood. Would. And the guy was so, I, I was so excited. I won this tournament. I won, I don't remember, like 900 and something dollars. I don't remember what first place is. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I just, I thought I was finally going to be on the Hendon Mob and I was so thrilled. And the guy just looks at me with such pity and he's like, honey, we don't report our dailies to the hand of mob. And I was, oh, I was that's, crestfallen. That's, cool. that's tough. That's even, yeah. You don't know, no trophy or no, no, no way of, um, of locking that in, but, but still a good feeling and, and got you. And so what, what, uh, what actually made you decide, like, what was it? A, something on TV you saw a discussion you had, did you play a charity event? What made you sort of get 
intrigued with poker? Yeah, it was none of the above. Um, I had zero interest in poker, zero background in poker. I think the only poker game I'd ever seen was in rounders. Um, so that I thought that was poker to me. So to me, everyone was Teddy KGB running an underground club, um, which is kind of cool. Um, and, yeah. you know, I can do the Russian accent, too. I am Russian after all. <laughs> so but that that's actually all I knew about poker was that movie. Um, great movie. And- that, that got me into poker for the most part, I would say. It's a, well, you know, it is it is a cult classic. It's an amazing film. And um, that, that makes sense. So that was that was it, your that was all your poker. Not like that was all my poker knowledge. And it must have, I mean, made an impression and been somewhere in the back of my mind um, as I was thinking about what what I was going to do next, the confidence game, my last book had come out. That was about con artists. I spent multiple years with con artists and their victims um, doing all sorts of interesting things and listening to their stories um, and gathering all of this material. Yeah. It's the one with the sheep on the cover. <laughs> what, what, what that mean exactly. What, what do you, what, how, give me an example of one of the con artists that you, so, so these are like past con artists that come clean or that you just, both, kind of, they both. Tell you- so some of my, some of my, um, some of the characters were characters who are dead. Um, and so whose stories are just part of the historical record. Others were still operating. Um, and those, some of them were anonymous, some weren't. And some, it was more journalistic. Like I tried to track some of them down. Um, and sometimes I was successful. Sometimes I wasn't. And some of them had gotten caught. So I did some interviews from jail. Um, of people wow. who had actually who had actually gotten caught for this their is crimes. Like Wall Street boiler room type things. Like some of them, yes. Yeah. So actually, one of the prison interviews was someone who ran a huge Ponzi scheme, um, but wasn't that wasn't the cool thing about it because there are so many Ponzi schemes. The cool thing about it was that afterwards he tried to fake his own death um, and oh, screwed wow. up. So, but then he uh, he basically compounded his charges and got multiple more charges because he tried to not only evade the law but then fake his own death and create all these fake documents and a new life what did um, the sentence get you what does that get you a time like was he in there for 10 years for life what he's still he's still in still, still <laughs> in so all right wow yeah super fascinating so it's called the confidence game basically yeah. i guess people just you know people really believe it if you can really believe in what you're doing and and just look and act the part people will follow is that yeah so and and it's actually confidence also in the sense of trust so so do you have confidence in me Right. Will you give me your trust? Because it's people who take advantage of other people's trust in them for their own personal gains. So that book had just come out. Um, Well, it had come out a little a little while earlier. um, And I was thinking about my next project. um, And all of a sudden I went through just this period of time where things just did not go my well, my way at all. Um, had big health scare where, you know, everything that I'd taken for granted kind of vanished. Um, I became allergic to everything. Like I actually couldn't put on clothes. It was awful. Because- I, I saw this in my notes. It looked like this period of time where either your husband and there was some other stuff and laid off yeah. or his startup didn't go, wasn't going, yep. just sort of uh, whatever could happen that goes wrong, went wrong. This yep. and, and so, yeah, tell me a bit what else, what, what, what was happening during this time? So I got sick. Uh, my grandmother died and she died in just this freakish accident. Um, totally healthy, lived on her own, not sick at all, um, and slipped in the middle of the night, um, hit her head and never woke up. So it was just, it was very sudden and no one had a chance to say goodbye and like, it just illustrates kind of life is fragile, right? And yeah. that could have happened to anyone. I mean, anyone can slip. Yeah. Um, and so, and so it was something that, you know, was 
was very obvious. It was very sad, but also very jarring. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I'm sick. My husband lost his job. My mom lost her job. Just everything kind of all of a sudden falling apart, not just for me, but then f- but for the rest of my family. Yeah. And it just really made me very super conscious of luck and of how much we rely on it. That so many times we just love to tell ourselves that we've gotten to where we are because we've worked really, really hard. And yeah, you have to work hard, but that ain't enough. (laughs) You need luck and luck needs to be on your side and it needs to go your way. I mean, you're you're a poker player. You, You know this, you know that to win a tournament, you have to play well, but you also have to get pretty damn lucky. And without that, you'll never win. Yeah. Um, and it's, 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 it is. I mean, I look at life as one big game and I, I reading some of your notes and I have not read your book yet. I do want to read it. And I see we have Paul Thompson. I'm not sure. Paul's in the chat saying the best book on audible. Oh, uh, thank you. I recorded it myself. Yo, so that's, all, that's good. That's a, that's a, that's the way to do it. So I, I definitely, I will want to, I want to read that, but I've seen some of the notes and some of your philosophy and outlook. Yeah. It really is interesting because you seem to really grasp the parallels with life and poker and just like you're saying with your, you know, with your grandma, unfortunately, or just timing and things. Yeah. And, you know, it, it really, it, it, there's a lot of, I think things you could, you could uh, illustrate that are the same in poker and just life is a great metaphor. It's a great metaphor. For it life. is, it is. And that's how I came to it. So I was trying to get a handle on luck and yeah. trying to figure out how do I explore these questions? How do I learn more about them? How do I actually learn to tell the difference between skill and chance? Cause in life it's hard Okay, yeah. for non poker players. And even for some poker players who, who don't want to make that leap, that cognitive leap from the table to, to life, it can be really difficult to tell the difference between skill and chance. And it's so easy to take credit for good things and to blame something else for bad things you know it's just it's very easy not to take responsibility when you should be um and not to give credit to others or to other things um rather than to yourself and so i wanted a way to write about this and started reading about game theory and read the theory of games and economic behavior which is kind of the foundational text of it and john von neumann the father of game theory turns out he's a poker player or was a poker player he's long dead um and he also used poker as the inspiration for game theory so this totally brilliant guy is writing about poker and is saying And by the way, I'm not just saying totally brilliant. He's not just the father of game theory. He's one of the inventors of the computer, um, one of the inventors of the hydrogen bomb. I mean, this is one of the geniuses of the 20th century. And here he is writing about how poker is just this perfect window into human decision making. And that if you can understand it, if you can solve it, then you'll have a way of basically solving the most complex decisions in life. And he was the one who actually gave me the template in the sense that he said, well, poker is like life because it's a game of incomplete information. Mm -hmm. Things I know, things you know, things we know in common, and you just have to make the best decision possible knowing that it's going to be probabilistic, knowing that nothing is actually going to be 100% certain. And so to me, that was really intriguing. And I thought, oh, I should read about this poker thing. And so I did, I started reading about it. And I just was very intrigued and said, why can't this be my book? Why don't I learn to play this game and use it as a metaphor for life, use my journey as a way of kind of exploring all of these themes? 
was this when so when you die when you say your only really exposure to poker was rounders and you probably had no idea what the hen and mob was you didn't did you know no. like stops you didn't know like what could be won. you didn't realize the money in poker you know the scale nope. scope probably right for all you know it could have been the same as backgammon or chess in terms of what the prizes are uh but you just you just basically didn't know it was just a total new world to you absolutely yeah. it was completely new i mean the first time i met eric seidel um i literally did not know how many cards were in a deck. Wow. Like actually I thought there were 54. Okay. I still like the number 54. Well, the Jokers, 54 right? sounds Yeah, the Jokers. <laughs> you know, 54, yeah, you're New York. I, I get it. What how did you get hooked up with Eric Seidel who is of course, you know, one of the maybe the one of the biggest legends in the game yeah. in a long standing time. He's one of the the guys from basically when poker was, you know, he's one of the few that have stood the test of time now. It's dominated by so many younger you know, yeah. the up and coming generation. He's one of the, the few guys I think people when they look and they see, they're just like, man, you know, this guy's this guy's tough. He's got all the tricks and he's got the experience and he's whatever. How did you get in, into working with Yeah. Him? So um at first I just decided, okay, I need to find someone. Who am I going to approach? And so I did some Google searches, you know, best poker player in the world. <laughs> um and at the time he was actually number one on the all time money list. I know that that list, you know, I, I know that it's not that important of a list, but I, yeah. to someone who knows nothing about poker, that's impressive. That's a um, good way to start. Yeah. Exactly. Um, he's not, I think right now he's number three, something like that. I'm not, I'm not sure because I don't really follow it anymore, but yeah. at the time he was number one. Um, so that was, he was one of my top picks for, you know, that, that just seemed like, okay, this guy's good. Then I realized that he'd, I looked at some of the things that were written about him and there was nothing personal because everyone knows he's a very, very private person, but there was a lot about his results. And I saw that he'd been winning since the eighties. I was like, Whoa, this is crazy. Is there anyone else like this? And there really wasn't someone who was at the top of the game for that long. And I thought, well, this is someone who's clearly changing and evolving with the game. And so probably I can learn something, but he's older. I didn't want someone young because I wanted, I was, I became very aware um, early on that, there was this tension between, you know, the more psychology, personal human approach to poker and the game theory, mathematical, you know, it's all, all about solvers. I didn't know the word solver at the time, but you don't have to start Googling things about poker for long to realize that a lot of the younger players are much more mathy. Um, yeah. And I wanted someone with a psychology approach because that's my background. My last math class was in high school. I mean, that's not my strong suit. And I was actually very nervous um, at the beginning that I wasn't going to be able to do it because of the math. And that I was very upfront with Eric right away. And he said, no, it's fine. You know, you can, it's, it's easy enough that someone in sixth grade could do it. Right. Um, and so so that was another element that he was older of an older generation. He looked nice. I mean, if you look at poker videos, he always just he's quiet. He's humble. He's unassuming. Even if you don't know him, he just gives off a vibe of a, being a nice person. And now I know that a lot of the personas that you see, you're like, oh, my God, this guy's such an asshole. They aren't really assholes. Right. It's yeah. something that they're doing for the cameras. But I have no way of knowing that if I'm just yeah. watching videos and trying to figure this out. Right. Um, so he seemed nice. And then I realized he was the guy in rounders with the visor. <laughs> and when That sealed the deal. I was like, oh, my God, this is the rounders visor guy. I have to I have to look him up. That's my, yeah, that's my guru. <laughs> that's what I want. So how did, but how did so how I cold called him. And you just called it. You got to call him and said that. And he it was, he was, well, I, I called, I called Twittered him. <laughs> so I didn't have his phone number, right. but I'm a journalist. I mean, that's actually, that's my training. Um, I am very, very used to approaching famous people and people who are, 
very busy and important and much smarter than I am and much you know more popular like celebrity people yeah. in all walks of life because I write about them and I can do it because I can say, oh, I'm from the New Yorker. You know, I'm not like I'm yeah. not doing it for me personally. I'm doing it for something I'm writing about. This was a yeah. little different because it wasn't for an article. It was for a book. But I, I was very open about him. I wrote him a note. I said, hey, uh, you know, I'm working on a new project um, that I think you might be interested in. Um, I'd love if you have a few minutes to talk. Um, I'd love to tell you about it to see if to see if it's something of interest. And he actually wrote back and he said, sure, you know, this sounds, he said, I write, you know, I love the New Yorker. I like your writing. So I lucked out that he's someone who actually knows what the New Yorker is and reads right. it because yeah, it's probably in the, in the, in the, <laughs> in the minority poker, <laughs> poker community that it's in tune to, to that world-class. Um, uh, yeah. and, and that, that's great. So, so it was pretty much, so there wasn't a lot of resistance. It was pretty much like, well, right, no, I mean, so then there was resistance, but so then we met. Um, and he actually, I also lucked out that he spent some time in New York. Then he splits his time between Vegas and New York. So we were able to meet in person, which I think helped. It's always easier when you're asking something big of someone to have that personal connection. Um, and no, there was definitely resistance because he's never taught anyone. And he's a very private person. I mean, one of the first things after I explained what I was doing, he was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. You have a psychology background. That's cool. Um, I think this is a great project. And then when he realized what I wanted from him, he's like, I don't want to be in a book. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't want anything. And so, so there was definitely resistance there. Um, and so I just tried to convince him that it was going to be a two-way street that I was going to work really, really hard that I could add value myself. I mean, I came really prepared to the meeting. I had looked through a ton of psych studies and had actually printed out studies for him um, about psychology and poker um, and like some stuff that poker players, as far as I knew, hadn't made it out of the academic press. So I gave it to him and said, Hey, look, I can, I can do, I can do things too. I can, I can give you this material on, you know, what people are working on from the, from the psychological standpoint. Right. Um, and I think it intrigued him. And it was also really a test of philosophy because so many people think players like him are just dinosaurs. They're obsolete and he's really not. Um, and I think he wondered if he could take someone like me, someone who knows nothing, and if that kind of approach could actually, like a psychological approach, could it still win? Could it still make me into a winning player? Um, and he, I think that was his, that was the thing that sold him. And I think the second thing was that he really, really loves poker. And in me, he saw someone who was from the non-poker world who could potentially bring new people to the game and bring people who didn't know anything about it, who misunderstood it, um, who could bring a more clear understanding of it um, to the to the public. So I think he saw it as a long-term investment. And even then, he didn't commit. It's not like he's like, yes, let's do this. He said, you know, let's try it out. You know, let's um, talk for a few weeks. Let's see if we get along. Let's see how it works. Um, and it turns out that we get along really, really well. Um, and his whole family is amazing. Um, it wouldn't have worked otherwise. They kind of adopted me. <laughs> and, uh, and it ended up working out. But I got very, very lucky that he, he was even open-minded to it. That's that's really cool. And and tell me just again we about the background a bit. So I, you did you came over. You were born in Moscow, Russia, and you yep. came over from an early age. And 
guess also you know, speaking about luck and, and all you, you referenced this as being a huge break, obviously your family getting to leave uh, yeah. in the Soviet Union, you go to, I believe, Israel, and then you ended up coming to Boston. Um, and, and what was, uh, do you remember during that time or just your, your family just, I mean, obviously you're very young, but they, they just knew it was time to, to leave or to, to make a, to, to change locations and, and just, uh, what was that? What, how did they decide on to? Yeah, well, I mean, they'd wanted to leave for most of their lives. I mean, this was, so we need to remember that this wasn't Russia, it was the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So Berlin Wall has not come down. Um, we're still in the Cold War. Um, and no one knows that the wall's coming down. No one knows that the Soviet Union is going to end in a few years. Like that, no one, really nobody knows. Like right. it's in retrospect, everyone's like, oh yeah, the signs were there. In the moment, no one knew. Right. If, if it was going to happen and I'm Jewish um, and Russia Soviet Union was a pretty anti-Semitic place. So there were quotas on how many Jews could get into certain universities. There were caps on what professions you could pursue. Um, there were, there was a lot of not, not, not great stuff going on yeah. um, and not a lot of opportunities. And my, my parents weren't dissidents, but they didn't like the government. They didn't like what was going on and they were looking for an opportunity to leave. And so they left at the first possible chance, which is when Jews were actually allowed to leave because Israel said, we'll take Jews. And so th- this is probably the only time in history where people would uh, forge their passports to say they were Jewish <laughs> rather than the other way around because they wanted to leave the, the Soviet Union. We yeah. never actually went to Israel. We just said we were going to. Wow. So what we ended up doing at the time when you left, you were stripped of your citizenship, like your passport was ripped up. Um, so we left the Soviet Union. We were stateless and we applied for political asylum to the U.S., which is what a lot of people do. So we spent almost a year in Europe, um, in Vienna and in Rome. And that's what a lot of um, Jews did. And there was this big Jewish community that was mobilized um, that helped them along all the checkpoints. And we had a family um, in the United States who sponsored us to come over. Um, And that's, that's how we came here. Very cool. And you, and you did get, you ended up going to Harvard university. Yep. Um, and how, how was that? Uh, so you, you basically were in Massachusetts and then you just, you applied to, you just knew you wanted to go to Harvard. And, and I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I always wanted to go to Harvard. I grew up, you know, half an hour outside the city and we'd go and, you know, take walks. Um, we'd go to Cambridge and to Boston on the weekends. Cause my, my parents are city people. They'd lived in Moscow. So we weren't the kinds of people who lived in the suburbs and never went to the city. There were some people in my school. I was so surprised. They're like, oh, you know, I've never been to Boston, you know, because they're, you know, they just, it was like, this is crazy. We go every weekend, Um, which which is very lucky. But I just fell in love with Harvard um, and really wanted to go there. And I applied early and got in. So I actually got got very lucky multiple times because a lot of people don't get in. Even yeah. if you do well in school, you so many things have to line up. People have to be in the right mood. The people who read your application have to be in a good mood. If someone's sick and they're reading it, they're like, oh, my God, I can't deal with this. You know, right. no. So, talk because so, I think you might be the most qualified, or at least have done the most <laughs> work in this book. I want we'll talk about the book and the other thing. But how do you? I mean with poker again these things you're mentioning i think is something that it's so hard to really think about and and to to put it on a level but 
how do you separate luck and skill? And, you know, I love that saying, uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Um, you know, this type of thought process though, like how do you think it's more about how people deal with it? Because obviously all these events, whether you got into Harvard or not, whether you, you know, Eric Seidel says he'll, he'll do it or not. Your experience would be way different if it was someone else or whether your parents got to come up, like all these type of events being born, you know, we could go all yeah. the way, right. The, the, what actually being born is what, like one in, I mean, however many trillion. Oh years. yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Most people are never born. <laughs> so it's like, you start talking about what's lucky, what's fair, what's not. And then, and then when you actually take it to a, a game setting, let's take poker and, yeah. you know, obviously variants and it looks like you've had some you know you had some good results you did have a you yeah. won the tournament i remember that while we were there that was in the bahamas i was there yeah. eighty-two thousand. pretty you know that's pretty cool so it was like on your journey that was nice to to get the uh where was that what was that year that was uh 2018 right here the eighty-four thousand one. so i mean it's pretty you know fresh into your journey uh, within a year you do get yep. a trophy and a, a, an actual nice event um you know explain to me how you sort of would would sum that up to people because it is hard to think about variants. I think one thing oh, sure. people in poker really have an eye, like you get it, like, all right, there's math, you have these situations, you can go through a tournament, stuff happens and you know you can apply it to life. But do you think that in general that this would be one of the biggest things that would benefit people to play poker to sort of if they could actually not just play but understand how that yeah. works in the math? Because this this is a very difficult concept. And you even hear professionals complain a lot. People talk yeah. about bad beats and like, oh, I, you know, like I lost Ace King, Ace Ten, all in, and you know the game won and lost in the trenches, right? There's a lot yeah. of other things that you can control, and then certain things you can't. And yeah. I actually, one of the things on my notes that I like the most, which is how Seidel would break this down to you, and if correct me if I'm wrong, but he would basically say there's two, t- you know, there's the people that, that you know you don't want to talk about bad beats or complain about <laughs> luck because there's there, those are the other people yep. like, like like you you know like like basically like those are people that you know don't really get it when you hear someone talking about a bad beat or a bad thing yep. you know that 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 way of explaining is pretty interesting to me because like i haven't heard it explained like that like the other people <laughs> Like, they, you, yeah. know, like you don't want to be that person because it's so easy and you hear it all the time. If you go to the Rio or in the summer, WSOP is down the halls. People are just calling the phone, bad beat. I had this, I had that. Like oh. we've all done it at some point. We've complained about unlucky in a tournament. So um, that to me, I thought was pretty funny. So um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe explain to me about. Yeah. That. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I think that if you, that is one of the great gifts that poker gives you, the understanding of variance. Because in life, it's so hard to understand it. And you never have to. You're never forced to. In poker, if you don't actually learn to understand variance, um, over the long term, you're not going to be a winning player. Because if you're running hot, you're going you're gonna to go broke. And a lot of players do. A lot of players who, who start you know, running hot, getting really good results, start playing too high, playing above their bankroll, and then they go bust because they, they think that the streak will always continue, and it doesn't. Um, and you have to really prepare yourself for the inevitable where you're going to regress to the mean, and you need to know what your mean is. Right. <laughs> you need to know kind of where what your edge actually is and where you're running relative to that. So, yes, I think that this is a huge skill. And Eric um, gave me a very, very valuable gift um, the first time I ever took a long trip to, to – um, to Vegas. Um, and I ended up spending 
multiple months in Vegas um, as I kind of started learning how to play um, and playing in all these daily tournaments. And I remember in what was supposed to be my first cash, <laughs> I we were on the bubble um, and I got all my money in with a set um, and got called by a flush draw and the flush hit. And I thought I was about to be chip leader and I got knocked out of the tournament. So I Eric's playing at the Aria, um, some 25 or 50K tournament because mm-hmm. he doesn't play dailies. Right. <laughs> and so I run there, wait till they're on a break, and I start telling him this story about how I had this set, blah, blah, blah. And he just shut me up. He is such a nice person who never shuts me up. And he said, I don't want to hear it. And I said, what do you mean? You know, you're, you're supposed to listen to me. Here. Right. I'm not venting. Help me. Tell me how unlucky I am and how I played great. Right. Exactly. And he, and he, he asked me a question that just summed it all up. He said, do you have a question about how you played the hand? And I said, well, no, I mean, I, you know, I flop top set and he's like, okay, end of story. That's it. Um, right. Less and, oriented, right? Just and then he and then he said he went on to say, Okay, you know, I let's make a deal. I never want to know the outcome of a hand. I don't care how it ended. I don't care what the other guy had. All I care about are the decision points. And if the only time I want to hear an outcome is if we're going to be playing against this player again, right? If this hand actually gives us valuable information for the future. Otherwise, I don't care if you won or lost. We're going to talk about the process because the outcome doesn't matter. That's variance. That's not up to you. And then he said what you're what you're referring to. Um, so it was it was definitely a bad beat situation. He said when you're telling a bad beat. It's like you're taking your trash and you're dumping it on someone else's lawn. Um, and that's not cool. And even if you're thinking about it, it's still trash. So it's toxic to you. It's weighing you down. You're wow. thinking about the wrong thing. You're taking your emotional energy and you're spending it on the wrong thing. And then he went on to say, he's like, there's always the guy at the table who's talking about how his aces got cracked. That's the other person. That's not you. Don't let so he basically said, you are never, ever allowed to tell me a bad beat story, ever. And I thought, but, but can't I just vent sometimes? And he's like, no, you can't, because I don't, I don't want you to think about it. And at the beginning, it was really hard. But then it's so amazing. He gave me such a big gift because I don't remember my bad beats. I actually remember the hands where I made interesting decisions, where I really didn't know if I was like, where, where there were close spots, where I really, where the thought process was interesting. And I don't remember how I got knocked out of a tournament unless it was an interesting hand. I don't remember, you know, when my aces got cracked, unless it was an interesting hand, because it doesn't do you any good to remember those moments, because that's just variance. It's just noise. And the past doesn't matter. A lot of people say, oh, you know, my, my aces got cracked three times already today, so they have to hold up up this time. No, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. work that way. Wheel, it could come red for 500 <laughs> spins in a row, right? It's every, exactly. every result is independent. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's true. Antonio Esfandiari taught me that lesson probably a decade or so. Similar, just not interested, don't want to hear it. And you know, I remember being a young kid in Vegas and, and, and just like, yeah, every every hand, but it's like you, you realize too in a tournament when you play these situations, it's math. You know, ace king to ace queen. If you run that four times, you're all in for your tournament life. You're going to be out 
almost for sure, you know, or three times, whatever, two times. You start flipping, and it's um, it's really easy to think about your last hand as well. And it's a lot of the time, it's those small blind, big blind, those pots that you stole, the, the pots you made a good fold or made a good call. And and then when it comes down, it's like, and then you cover the people, right? If you got the big stack, yeah. you can take the risk. You can withstand some adversity or put the pressure on. So yeah, it's it's great. I mean, it's a great it's a great lesson. It's it's very interesting. I hadn't heard that trash analogy, but it is. It's a, it's a very like strong way of putting it. But it's you're right. You're dumping your air and you're putting your problems. Also, it's like negative yeah. energy. Like it's also think about the times when you're sharing with someone. Oftentimes, maybe they're playing the tournament at the same time, or as well, they don't want to be thinking about negative. Like oh, how, like I have the best hand and I lose, or you know, not energetically. Um, that's where I want to kind of segue to the next point. What do you believe about? Where do you stand on like this positivity or the uh, secret? Like in terms of mental. Um, preparation or, or mental do you, do you believe in energetically like stuff or do you, do you think that that it, it's just like give me that thought process because is that that's different than psychology yeah like, like where does that kind of uh cross paths um i'm very anti-secret um i actually refer to the secret um in my book about con artists and the guy who was featured in the secret is in jail for um running a cult and killing people in his cult. So just, just a little non-negative, a little non-positive thought about the secret. So that guy that this guru was a cult leader. Um, So I, I do not believe in the power of energy. What I do believe is that our mindset matters um, and that our mindset affects going back to psychology, how we perceive the world and in turn, what we notice and what other people share with us. So think of it this way. If you're someone who's a positive person, if you're someone who kind of tries to not dwell on the, on the bad variants and instead says, okay, you know, I, I did my best um, moving on, you know, let me, let me put myself in a position to win next time. Like, let me clear my mind. Let me reboot. Um, Yeah. How's it, how's my day going? Fine. You know, I, I busted out of the tournament, but, but it's okay. It'll be okay. Um, If you're someone like that, then people are going to want to be around you in, in poker and in life. They'll share more opportunities with you because they'll be like, Oh, you know, she's, you know, she just lost her job, but she's such a, like a great positive person. And she is someone who works really hard and, you know, her mind's in the right place. Like, let me, I'm going to think of her when, when I see a job opening that might actually fit. Um, Oh, she just broke up with someone. I'm going to think of her when I see someone who's great and single, who might be a good match with, for her, whatever it is. Now, if I'm someone who just dwells on it and every single time I'm like, Oh my God, no, let me tell you about how I busted the tournament. No, like, let me, I'm just so unlucky. Can never get lucky. Why do I always run like crap? It's so unfair. Yeah you're you're going to be lots of fun to be around and people aren't aren't going to want to um and a lot of times they're not even going to think of you when you have that job opportunity or that other opportunity they're like you know i don't want to i don't want to deal with her anymore you know she's she's just very down so i think that having the more positive mindset just puts you in a place where you notice more things because you also you know, you're actually also going to be taking in more information when you're open to it, when you're more positive, when you're open minded than when you just are so in your head and ruminating on all this bad luck and thinking, oh, it's so unfair. You're not even going to notice a lot of stuff. There's a really cool study that was done on um, 
people who thought of themselves as lucky and unlucky, the psychologist left money on the street, um, basically on their way to the experiment. The lucky people noticed it and the unlucky ones didn't. They didn't even realize that there was money on the floor. Um, so, so you actually don't like, you're, you're so focused on stuff. You're like, oh, of course, you know, I'm so unlucky. Of course, that other guy found the money. No, the money was there when you walked past too. You right. just didn't find it. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting. So, I mean, again, that's, it's sort of closely, they're close, but there's a big difference, right? Between energy and, and what you're saying, oh, like this, and, or just being kind of positive and, and upbeat in, in general. Like, I, I guess yeah. that, that there's a differentiator there and it's not like, you know, listen, if you want to believe in the secret or these type of things, maybe that helps you trick you into being positive and whatnot. But yeah, like I agree. I think but um, the secret is much more saying like, if I think it is going to happen, that's just not true. And that's right. actually a very detrimental way of thinking about things because no, it's only going to happen. Sure. You have to, you have to know what your goals are, but you just, ha you have to work really hard then. And you have to wait when things aren't going your way. You need to know, how do I respond to that obstacle? How do I move on? You know, how do I actually have the psychological resilience to deal with bad beats and to learn from them and to say, okay, you know, I can, yes, I failed. What do I take from this? Let me examine my decision process. Did I make a mistake? If so, okay, how do I fix it? If I didn't make a mistake, let's move on. Let's keep going. And if you're just thinking, if I think it, it's going to happen, you're not going to have any of those building blocks of, of resilience and of mindset. And you aren't necessarily going to be doing the right things. You're not going to be productive in the right way because if I think it, it's going to happen. Yes, I, I think that's a really interesting way of breaking it down. I like that a lot. Um, how how did you? Well, two parts. One, how did you get into actually writing? So to to make to write a book because you know Bill Perkins, who I know you know as well, just wrote his book Die with Zero. Just just got released. Uh, I think it's a great read. I I, I need to read. I want to read your book. Actually, I want to read all your books because I'm fascinated. The the, the con artist thing seems really interesting as well um, on, on that. But how do you actually give me a, how the the production works on a book, like how that actually comes to uh, life? So you you side on an idea. You just write it. Do you, do you pre get? Uh, do you write it and then you shop it, or do you have go to a publisher? Yeah. And this is my so, what's going to happen? So it really depends on where you are in your career. Um, so the book business, if we're getting like down to the nuts and bolts, bolts like the poker business, um, you don't do it on your own. You have an agent. You mm -hmm. have you know, editors, there, there's a very, if you want to go the traditional publishing path, yeah. there are lots of gatekeepers. Um, and so for me, um, this is my third book. So I, I had an agent. Um, and so the way that this particular book worked is I talked through a lot of ideas with my agent. She shot a lot of them down before we found the poker one. Um, and then you write a proposal. Um, and the proposal is long because it's, both your vision for the book and you also have to write parts of it. So I actually spent multiple months in Vegas um, with Eric um, before I sold the book because I couldn't write the proposal. I needed some, I needed material. And this was true of the con artist book. I spent months with con artists, like starting my research because you need to figure out, will the book work? Um, you know, what, how, how will it work? Um, you need to be able to kind of, do do enough homework in order to sell it. So then you write the proposal. Um, you work with your agent on your proposal. You know, go back and forth. Your agent becomes your editor in that in that sense to help you edit, make the proposal right. as good as possible. And then you submit it to. And then your agent 
knows all the best editors for it and will submit it to different publishing houses. For The Biggest Bluff, there was an auction. Um, so a lot of different people bid on it. Um, and then the people who bid the most money, we met with them face to face. And I chose the person I thought would execute the vision for the book the best. And then I sold the book. Um, and then I started writing. Is, is this is this a possible could it be a screenplay could it be a movie is, do you think is it does it have that type of um that type of feel to it or is it more about um yeah i hope so i hope so we're uh, we'll do our best to make that happen very 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 cool that would be that would be fun um what was that what was your biggest learning from the the con artist uh the con artist writings what was there anything that fascinated you about that do they how they all had in common or something what was the, well something that fascinated me was just how charismatic they are like how insanely personable and nice and cool they are i knew they were con artists and i found myself liking them and i found myself believing them i was like oh my god i want to get drinks with you for the older ones like oh i want you to be my grandfather there was this guy who was a card shark and he not only so he cheated at cards but he also cheated at dice and he used to so he actually had been in jail for racketeering because he used to run a bunch of um, gambling clubs in new york and was um, very closely tied to the mob. Um, they, he had mob protectors because that's that's how it worked back in the day. Um, and his clubs were crooked. So, like, if you played blackjack there, it was crooked. If you played poker, everything was crooked. So this guy was, like, a, a, a bad, not a great guy and would take advantage of people. Um, and I just, he was so fascinating and such a great storyteller. And when he and I met, he was in his late seventies. He's since died. Um, But at the time, you know, he was still full of life, probably still conning and doing all of his, all of his tricks. And he was so fun. He's like, Oh, you know, let me teach. I'm going to teach you some card tricks. I'll, I'll teach you how to cold deck. I was like, yeah, it sounds great. He's like, come to my house in Connecticut. I was like, all right, let's go. And then I was like, wait, what are you doing? What's happening? Yeah. (laughs) So what, what do you think, what, here's my thought on that. When I, with someone who's successful like that or so personable, people love, they could, it, it seems like they could almost do anything, right? They yeah. could be, they could literally choose any profession and be successful. Cause it's like, people are attracted energetically. What do you think is the attribute or the, the thing that d- makes them decide? Do you think it's laziness fundamentally? Like they just <laughs> think it's an easier way. Why do they not do something no, that so, is positive? Or, so or it's not laziness. In jail. It's not laziness because it's really hard work to be a con artist because you're essentially leading a double life because you have to create this fiction. You have to create this other reality. And it Mm -hmm. takes a lot of work. And they usually could have made much more money in a legitimate profession because they're really smart. So this guy, I mean, how much did he make from running crooked games? I mean, maybe for a time he made some stuff. Then he was in jail for 10 years. He probably could have made a lot more if he just, you know gone to work in finance or or something like that um so i think that it's a combination of predisposition and opportunity and then when that predisposition so i write in the book about something called the dark triad of traits which is psychopathy narcissism and machiavellianism and con artists tend to have at least two of those um machiavellianism which is the ability to persuade someone to do what you want them to do, but they think it's their own idea. So you're very subtle about it. And uh, they actually think that they've come up with this great plan, but you're the one who did. Um, So that's kind of, that's how they get people to do things because no one ever thinks that they're being taken advantage of when they're being conned. They think that this is a great deal, a great opportunity, a great whatever. Um, 
narcissism. So this ego, this sense of self, this sense of entitlement, like I deserve this, I have this coming to me. So I'm not actually doing something wrong. If this guy is stupid enough to, you know, to play poker with me, I deserve to take his money. Um, even if I'm cheating, like, it doesn't matter if he, if you were smarter, he'd see that I was cheating, right? Like you have, you have a way of rationalizing everything because you just think you deserve it. Like I, I met imposters who had stolen people's identities um, and stolen, you know, MDs and PhDs. And there was one guy who actually performed surgery without, he dropped out of high school. Um, and he was like, well, I deserve those degrees. I don't need to study for them because I'm just smart and I, they're mine. So I'm just going to take them. And if that guy's reckless enough to leave his credentials running, you know, lying around, then that's on him. So, and then psychopathy is the most rare because even though we like to think that we like to dismiss a lot of people who do nasty stuff as psychopaths, it just doesn't happen. It's like 1% of the population. So it's a very, very rare trait. But if you're a psychopath, then you obviously don't experience empathy. You don't actually relate to people the way that that a non-psychopath does. You don't experience emotions in the same way. So you don't feel guilt um, and you're just able to do this. So I think that having the predisposition and being in the right place at the right time. So like we're the wrong place at the wrong time. So like if you think about it as like think about uh, something very simple, like financial fraud, like your company is losing money, you're doing the books, um, and you have an opportunity to just fudge the numbers a little bit so that it looks better to investors. And you really believe in your company and you think that you're going to make tons of money in the future. And so you decide, well, just this once I'll do it. Not everyone would. Most people wouldn't actually never, that that wouldn't even cross their mind, right? They, they'd say, we, we're losing money. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. Right. But there's that person who has that predisposition and ends up in that kind of situation who says, I'm just going to do it. Um, and who actually crosses that line and then gets away with it. So getting away with it is really important. And then realizing that no one noticed, I can go bigger next time and bigger and bigger. And then eventually they get very hubristic and go so far that they end up getting caught. But I yeah. think that ultimately they do it. The most successful con artists do it for the power. They do it for the sense of control over other people's lives. I mean, they're playing God. They, they actually get to create reality. They get to create a new world. That's not true. And people believe it and people believe in them. And so I think that that's probably that rush of power is why they don't go straight. Um, Most of most of them never do. And is that, is it greed though? Ultimately that once you kind of, it's hard because once you get, you get, get a certain point where like you said you could fudge the books a little or you know let's just take the uh, one of the biggest poker scandals ever the pot ripper on ultimate bet you know where the guy could see the cards but they they put the outlier like to the moon right like you know you could have or this possible scandal you know like you just at some point i guess what is their downfall ultimately that gets them into gets them into trouble yeah well i think for most con artists like the best one so not all cheats are con artists right i don't think possible was a con artist he's just a cheater Um, and and same with pot river although pot ripper pretended to be someone he wasn't right he he yeah i think i think that was that's also that's gray area but there is a difference i think con artists people who 
actually do this successfully for a long time. I don't think it's greed. I think it's greed for power and for control. Because once again, they usually don't make that much money and they could make a lot more money doing something else. And it's not that much money for the effort. Even someone like Bernie Madoff could have made a lot of money um, without any of the stress with uh, in a more legitimate financial way. Yeah, I guess that would be one of the examples. And it's just so well documented in such a crazy, bad situation that got brought to light. But for example, him, um, he, I, what, what was, why do you believe that is, was it something like one little thing that turned and snowballed or it just, once you kind of go down that path, it's hard to really, Yeah, I think he, I think he, I think it was cool. I think he was, I think it also, it's that feeling of power. It's of knowing one upping everyone else. I know something you don't know. I'm superior to you. Like it's this, it's this hubris, this, mm. this just, sense of grandiose self like i deserve all of this and look at you guys you are all believing in me and trusting me sucks to be you right, right? <laughs> yeah, and you see this a lot there's a lot of this stuff where you can just feel it like i've seen it in sports in particular with with handicappers and picking yeah. and you can really put on nowadays with social media and it doesn't take much to be able to put out well-produced videos or you know, you can really uh, mislead people in, in, in modern day. I think so with, with technology and social media now, it's very easy to, uh, there's so there's so many people have access to it. It doesn't take much, right? To, to put, sure. You only need to fool so many people to uh, to do. So it's, it's that's fascinating. That's a really fascinating book. And is that, a, that is what you've had bestsellers, New York Times, New York bestsellers? That was, yeah, both of my books before this were New York Times bestsellers. So this one, The Confidence Game was, and the first one was Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. And it was about using Sherlock Holmes as a model of thought and it was about mindfulness and paying attention and being present, um, which is a theme actually in uh, The Biggest Bluff as well, because I think it's so important to being a good poker player. The first thing Eric ever taught me is pay attention so that yeah. those are the two most important words that you can that you can offer someone for for poker advice that's awesome i saw that your book yeah mastermind how to think like sherlock holmes is it your dad uh the, the sherlock holmes you were introduced at a young yeah. age your father uh read arthur conan doyle's stories is that is that yeah. where you got, it? you got that for the first time yeah. So when I was a kid, um, he would read, we had this tradition. We grew up uh, in a pretty, pretty big household. Um, there weren't a tiny house, a tiny apartment, but, but there were lots of us kids. Um, so there were four of us all the time. Um, so he would read to us on Sundays. This was like our, our big moment big activity we could all do as a family and he'd pick a different book. And then every, every Sunday he would read a part of it. Um, and then we'd move on eventually when we finished. And I remember when he chose Sherlock Holmes and when he actually started reading it, it was just, I don't know why the stories just really struck me. Um, and I was just, I, I don't remember how old I was, six years old, something like that. But I was just so fascinated by Holmes and Watson and all of their adventures. And the thing that really actually, the story that I remembered the best wasn't one that was kind of the scariest or anything like that. It was because of a scene between Holmes and Watson when Holmes asked Watson how many steps led up to 221B Baker Street, where they live, and Watson didn't know. And Holmes said, well, that's the difference between us. You only see, I both see and observe. And that had somehow just struck my mind. I, I remember back then, 
I totally missed the point, by the way, you know, the point between just seeing and seeing and observing. But what I did realize was that I didn't know the number of steps anywhere. So I remember telling him to stop reading. And then I actually started like went outside to count the number of steps. (laughs) So that when Sherlock Holmes asked me, I would know I I was still not quite clear on, you know, fictional versus non-fictional characters. (laughs) I wanted to be prepared. The um, the lesson there is very valuable, and it's true. I think uh, being present is something I think now more than ever. It was take the poker table, sure, but just in life, you know, it's so now everyone's got iPads and cell phones, and you know, I have a 15 month old son, and yeah, it's uh, you got to be. You, it's important to be aware, at least to understand if you're not being present. You know, there's a big difference. To you can't always be perfect or be you know in the moment, if you will, but you need to understand what that looks like and that if you are or not, you know, cause I think it, it's so easy to just go through the motions. It's so easy. Yeah. You know, this was a, a breakthrough I had with Elliot Rowe. Um, I think around 2018 in Barcelona, that's I, the day I found out my, my wife was pregnant. I just remember this day, but we had a call and that really broke through to me. You know, I realized I had a losing year for my first, I've, I've been going to the world series since I was 21. I'm 33. I had my first two losing net net losing summers and in, in tournaments at the world series and you know whatever variance right it doesn't right. really matter but when you win for 10 or 11 years straight and then you lose two in a row you know, i started looking at it and i was like I, I was trying to think what is it i was talking out loud i wonder what's different i was like oh i started a youtube channel and i'm doing i'm coming late i'm doing edits i'm doing titles i'm showing up late to events i'm filming i'm not i'm at the table i'm doing my stuff and it's like yeah wh- okay what what does that mean well yeah, I'm not, I'm not on time. I'm not there at the very beginning. I'm not fully present. I'm on my phone a lot. I'm doing all this content media stuff and you know, that's okay, but I need to be realistic that that is not, that is not going to be a hundred percent focused and, and that's going to cost me and being late and not being early and missing hands and, you know, coming whatever. So it was, it's like, it's one thing to do it. And then you got to say, okay, this is what I'm doing this is what it is. And do I want to do that? Or, all right, I'm going to show up on time. I'm going to be fully present and focused and not do the other one. So it's like, okay, to not be present or not be whatever, but as long as you're aware and you're able to make that decision and realize what you're doing and what the trash are. So I think that's a big, that's a big thing. And like you're saying in poker and mindfulness and being aware, when you're at the table, maybe you could give a little bit of of, uh, what that means to you and what, what you also, what you see, what you observe versus your competition. What are some things that you notice that maybe others are doing wrong or not optimally in poker and something that you found very interesting that you're able to, to, to take advantage of there. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that that's actually one of my strong suits is my ability to really be present. Um, and it's something that Eric stressed to me. Um, and he actually had me follow, uh, lucky chewy for a day andrew lichtenberger um to illustrate what presence actually looks like um for people who don't know chewy um you should because he's amazing but he's also just one of the most focused players i've ever met um and you see a difference so this was at the high rollers um at the time you know he was playing in a 25k and you saw just a world of difference between him and all these other guys and we're talking about the best in the world right now not even the not players i normally play against unless it's in a world series bracelet event where they're you know they're uh slumming it with the rest of us (laughs) but but, so there these are kind of the best of the best and there's a huge difference and i took a lot from from chewy i took a lot from eric and i took a lot from the fact that i actually have a mindfulness practice and i do meditate and do yoga every day um and i am kind of in i am in the practice of 
being aware. And one of the main things that I know is that you can't multitask and that when you start multitasking, you stop paying attention and your mind is actually not, it can't focus on multiple things at the same time. When you're focused on one, you're not focused on the other, you're task switching, you're missing information. And so what I've noticed is that I'm one of the only people who doesn't have my phone when I'm at the table. I actually do have it out because I take notes on it, but it's on airplane mode. I'm not actually texting. I'm not doing anything. And when I'm not in a hand, that's actually the golden time for me because I can really pay attention and yeah. pay attention to other people, pay attention to what they're doing, pay attention to how they're playing, pay attention to the hands I'm not in. So many players, I think this is one of the mistakes that I see um, players make the most um, who are starting the game. They play way too many hands because they're like, oh, I'm bored. I want to play. Like, well, if you're bored, you're not doing it right. Not playing hands is actually the great opportunity that you have to take notes on people. Because when you're in a hand, you, you don't have time to do that, right? You can do it after the hand. But you can really pay attention to their body language, to how they're betting, to all of these different things. And I see that people just waste that information because they're looking elsewhere. They're talking. They're looking at the TV. They're looking at their phone. They're just not there. They tune out when they're not in the hand themselves. And when they're in the hand, they're too in themselves. They're not looking at everything. They're not paying attention to all of the different dynamics. Um, and to me, that's actually one of my greatest edges is the fact that I'm constantly aware of all of that and I'm constantly taking notes on it. I'm not just taking notes on hands. I'm taking notes on players. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting. It's, it's true. And looking back at my, just for myself playing, a, I played a long time in live in particular. I can, my best results have been when I have been just my phone's away or I'm fully focused. I'm there from the start. And it's like, you know, it, it's uh, you see people with, you mentioned uh, Andrew and, and, you know, Lucky Chewy, other players that just kind of exude this and you, they just seem like the consummate professionals are doing this. Uh, it, it definitely makes a difference. I think online as well, you could say the same. You know, people are playing 14 tables and are just spastic and they show up, they wake up, they roll out of bed, they have to put their coffee, which we've all, well, I've done, you know, over my career at numerous times or go out drinking Saturday and the biggest days, Sunday, show up and just expect to do okay. It's like, no, you're not, you're not, there's people that are, have done their cold plunge, eaten their, their veggies, shake and, and, and vegan and done their workout, meditated, come in and start on time and have their schedule laid out and know what their backup tables color coordinate their, you know, what tournament is what, how many big, you know, all these things matter when you're competing yeah. best in the world. Like, these you know you see Kristen Bicknell who just had another world series win yeah. and, Fox and you know the power poker couple like they're doing different stuff you know this is not a hobby for that they're no. in there and they are they are perfect on their stuff they don't tilt they're not they're not punting stuff they're treating you know they, they know that five to ten blinds in tournaments how they can maximize that and they, yep. they and, and to your point about people get bored that happens as well where it's like Listen, the, the simplest part about poker, and luckily people aren't doing what you say, but the ranges, right? Like in the yeah. cutoff, you have 25 plus blinds and you're supposed to open this hand. Yeah, yeah you can make a little adjustment based on the, the, the players behind, but this is what you're supposed to do. When you start opening two, two eight suited, you know, deuce eight suited, like you are deviating dramatically from the, the plan and you are going to find yourself in difficult situations just based on whatever so yeah all that being said it, it's it's a very intricate game it's very there's a lot to it and you really do have power 
to um, to control a lot of your, you know, put yourself in a position for success. And like I said, you know, it's okay if you're doing something differently. If you are doing a biography, if you're writing a thing, if you're if you're doing YouTube content and all that, that may provide other value. But you just have to accept that that is going to be net net taking away from your actual probably result at hand most likely. And that's oh, absolutely, absolutely. You got to you got to you got to be. It's like important to be aware because. I think, you know, I was naive for about a year and a half or two. I was sort of um, not really, I was just kind of oblivious to that, that's that reality. And, and I think that, you know, it's, it's awareness is huge and that that's, uh, that's big. What is it for the biggest bluff? Tell us a bit about what this is specifically. Is this actually your, this is about what, what is that reference when you say the biggest bluff? This is your, your poker journey in particular. Or what is, what does it mean? It is my poker journey, and it's um, other than the opening first few pages, it's told chronologically. The first few pages uh, go ahead in time a little bit to my first ever World Series main event, um, which did not go the way I wanted it to. (laughs) So, so we open the book in a in a place that I hope no one other than me will ever find themselves, which is throwing up on the floor of the bathroom in the Rio Hotel and Casino. Oh wow. Um, I had a migraine. <laughs> you, was that stress related? Do you think? I mean, was it was it happen sometimes? Was this? Yeah. Something? Oh, I get migraines. So it wasn't like, like this was like a one. This wasn't just like this was happening. And you were stressed out, and it was some. Crazy. No, no. I was. I. I mean, I think in retrospect, I think that poker did actually exacerbate my migraines when I was playing full time. But at that at that point, I think it was it was it's a lot of things. You know, right. I, there are lots of triggers. But yeah, this was um, end of the day, day one of the main and I was blinding out because I was in the bathroom and couldn't actually get, make my way back to the table. Um, so so that that's the reason I opened with that scene is I mean, not just because it's a dramatic moment, but this was the moment I'd been planning for, right? My The book was originally going to be me working with Eric to play the main event of the World Series. It was going to be this, this journey from point A to point B. And it didn't go according to plan. So this is, it was just the perfect illustration that you can plan all you want and you can work hard and everything can fall into place. And yet at the time you can't control, there are things that you still can't control. You know, you can do everything. I'd done yoga, I meditated, I slept well, I ate well and high migraine <laughs> you, you think that you think did, you got it did, did you feel extra pressure because you know it's great that in terms of your your journey which i do want to talk about poker stars getting signed this kind of whole uh progression of of uh of a journey you know if you look at it right if you run a simulation let's say from this second until that first time you said i'm going to dive into poker i think it's pretty it's it's safe to say it's gone very well right like you've yeah. won a you won an event. You got your 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 poster trophy. Um, you know it was a it was a it was a not just like a side event. It was it was an event at yeah. uh, you know Hendon Mob. You get all that. So it's pretty cool. You've had some deep runs, some experiences. You've gotten to work with Eric Seidel. You played some big big stakes. You've had you've had bubbles. You've had success, triumphs, all that. But did you, did you feel pressure along the way? Like did you kind of for a while? Was there a point where you would enter a tournament? Let's say the significant ones, the ones that are you know of a. Uh, some stature or main events and were you like all right this is so big for me for my book if i do well this is going to really help everything did you feel pressure like that or you just kind of like go about your day like a lot right like winning stuff 
adds a lot, you know, it's especially for women in poker. I don't like talking about this that much, but it's true. I mean, there's not a lot of women in poker. You know, I've had Maria Ho, Liberty, Lingo Martin, um, you know, I've set Kristen Bicknell on my podcast and a woman in poker doing well is like, it's a big deal in the sites and everyone's like, craving it you know it's like it's such a more if you win the wpt on uh, a tournament versus a, a random joe like it's a big deal like it's yeah. big big marketing it's exciting people are fascinated so yeah tell me about the that that whole yeah i mean i you know when i started off i had no expectations right i i wanted to do well but the book was gonna happen no matter what because it was about the journey and we learned very early on, it's about the process, not the outcome. So yeah. could I, you know, as long as I learned to think well, um, but of course, you know, personally, I was hoping I'd do well, but I never, I never knew just how far I could go and what I could do. Um, and so at the beginning, there wasn't, there wasn't that kind of pressure. There was pressure on me from myself to just give it, give it my best shot. After when I won the PCA national, um, so first of all, I mean, there was definitely once like it didn't even occur to me that I'd make the final table. Right. This was a multi-day event. Um, I was exhausted. Um, and then when I finally, you know, here we are on you know day four um, and when. And this is also one of the first platinum passes ever awarded. So, you know, you win your, you win your entry into the, the 25 K. So that was kind of cool. Um, so this was right, right after poker stars had announced this, um, this poker players championship that they were going to be doing the following year. Um, so they'd awarded the first one in Prague in December, and this was going to be like the second or third platinum pass awarded was in this event. Um, and so I, I, I was just playing and, and trying to do my best. And then I made the final table and I didn't just make the final table. I was one of the chip leaders going into the final table. And that's, I mean, talk about pressure. All of a sudden I was like, holy shit. Like yeah. there's like, a world. It's hard to get there. It's like a Super Bowl. You know, you can get to final tables, the cards, like one flip, 170, 30, 60, 40, a cooler, a move you don't take your day. And it's like, yeah, you know, you're not just get this every time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's exciting. That is a lot of pressure. And so, so I also, and I realized, I mean, there's a world of difference, as you say, between winning and coming in second. No one remembers second place, right? For And especially if you're female, you got to win. And had I not won, I mean, I don't think I would have been signed by stars. I don't think you know, the, the media wouldn't have cared because the story of, oh, journalist starts writing book and comes in second in major tournament <laughs> ain't a story. Wins. It's a different, different thing to it. Yeah, that's it's what a, I'm saying. Like, but so, because I had Liberty on recently and we talked about this because she won a, a EPT main. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, a big, big, big deal. And she got signed and sort of was a mess. But like, did you feel, did you think that that tournament particularly, did you, were you like when you were heads up, like, oh, this could mean me getting signed was that even in no, like possibility? No, wasn't even in my mind. You weren't no. thinking about it, but no, but I wasn't. After, I was thinking about winning, right? And, and especially and after, like, I, it just hits you. But I, you know, I to get back to your point about the pressure. It actually, it's not great when you when you have that kind of pr- pressure because you don't play as well. So I started out as chip leader, and within the first ten minutes, I was just so nervous, and there was so much going on that I made a huge mistake and lost like two thirds of my chips, and mm-hmm. went from chip leader to like eighth in chips. Oh, um, wow. I had pocket aces, and I overplayed them a little bit, shall we say? <laughs> um, and luck, I mean. 
something something stuck like i ended up checking back the river um rather than uh, bombing and losing even more money but i should have folded multiple times before the river so i at least preserved some chips but then for the rest of the time i actually it's funny talk if we think about mindset i think in a way i probably wouldn't have won without that hand because that hand forced me to focus like when you have a lot of chips, oftentimes you can feel like, oh, like I can afford to lose a little bit. Like you can, it's a, it's a bad way of thinking, but especially like when you're at your first major final table, you're someone like me who doesn't have that much experience. I mean, I'd been playing for a year. This was almost a year to the day from the first time I sat at a poker table was this, was this big final table. And I think when you when you're short stack there's a lot of pressure and you really have to think clearly and you have to think well and i'd worked on my short stack game a lot um so so in a way that actually snapped me out of this pressure and now i was like okay well now it's mine to it's not mine to lose anymore like now you know i have to just i have to i have to play i have to grind you're saying it's almost you're saying it's less pressure to be short stack yeah yeah, less because yeah because there's this push shove or make a call. Yeah. So after losing that hand actually allowed me to focus because there was like the pressure was gone. I was like, okay, I screwed up, and right. and now like now I'm probably going to be out next. But it was a really like it was an intimidating final table. Like there was Chris Mormon there and Harrison Gimble and all of these people who I'd heard about and who I, you know, who had significant results. I mean, Gimble had one PCA, the main event, the, you know, and, and it was definitely, and Chris Mormon, I mean, there were the, at the world series, I saw these huge cutouts of him because he had had a book out as the most winning online tournament player or something. I don't remember, but, but these were people who were real players. Um, and it just, after that initial 10 minutes though, I think the, the pressure of winning went away and it only then resurfaced later on. And I think the most, I mean, the most pressure filled decision was the last hand of the tournament um, because I had the chip lead um, and my opponent had gone all in and I had nothing. I had ace high um, and I needed to figure out if I was going to call. And if I called and was wrong, um, he'd have the chip lead and it would, totally changed the momentum and everything else. And I think I, I took a long time. That was one of these decisions where I was very glad there was no shot clock. Um, and I ended up calling and it was the, it was the right call, but it was so to end the tournament. You made an ace high call. Yeah. That's pretty gangster. That's a nice, extra, you know, extra. We had one card to go. I ended up, I ended up making a pair on the river, but he went all in on the turn. Yeah. I had ace high on the turn. Wow. Very cool. Um, um, that's awesome. Well, so you win that tournament, and then well, tell me a little bit about your support system, your husband, yeah. your family, and what they thought about you getting into poker. Because something I like to talk about is risk with yeah. where you're at in your life. I mean, I, again, you have a job. I think you're at the New Yorker, or you're, you're you have a you have stuff. It's not like when someone. I always say, be careful when you start. You know, if you're, yeah. if you're 18 or 21 or whatever, wherever it's legal in your region, you start playing. You don't have a family. You don't have kids. You don't have a lot of responsibility. In, and you're not risking very much. You start with fifty, a hundred, two hundred dollars. Free rolls isn't that it's different than when your family, you're older, and you dive in and you're playing now bigger buy-ins, or you know you're risking a percentage of your roll, and you could go really negative. So you got to be careful. So what was that? Um, how did you sort of uh, segue into poker, and what was their reactions? Yeah. Um, so I'm very. I got very lucky. My husband thought it was very cool. He doesn't play poker. It's so funny. Everyone. Everyone is so 
insanely sexist. They're like, oh, your husband must play, right? That's why you play. I'm like, no, actually, my husband doesn't play poker. He doesn't like poker. He he doesn't. Um, he, he likes that I like it, but he doesn't like it at all. Um, and my parents thought it was awesome because my parents have always thought everything that I do is awesome. They're cheerleaders. They, they think it's great. And they always support me. My grandmother thought I'd sold my soul to the devil uh-huh. and that I was just going to hell. She was very upset with me. Yeah. Different generation, <laughs> right? They're, it's, they're, it's always the harder, the further I think away. It's, yeah, she, just, it's she, just, she just thought she had this look of absolute despair and she's like, you're going to be a gambler. Yeah, that's what we're trying to shake. More of more of the books, more of the podcast talking. People understand it's not like that, but um, yeah, sometimes. Right, but to her, it was just I, I'd been. I'm going to Sin City, um, yeah. and and that's it. Um, this is why you went to Harvard for this, right? Yeah, I could, yeah. So that's either it's usually one or the other reaction, either support that's very cool, or you know, you're you're. So, But yeah, and and I got very, very lucky that one of the things that Eric takes very seriously is bankroll management. Mm -hmm. So Eric is also someone who's never gone bust. And he does not think it should be a point of pride. He gets really pissed at all the pros who are like, oh, I've gone bust three times. He's like, no, that's not cool. That's not supposed to happen. That means that you're actually managing risk very, very poorly. And you can never guarantee that someone's going to back you again, that you're going to be able to come back. So he told me from the beginning he was like i know you're doing this for a book you know i know that you have your writer and that was actually i think it helped free me up to know that i didn't have to do this right that it's not like i was relying on poker to feed myself that i had you know that i'm a writer who happens to be playing poker so i think that that was very that was very freeing but he said if he's going to work with me I need to take it seriously and I need to approach it as a profession. And so he forced me to build up a poker bankroll naturally. So I started off playing online, actually. I live in New York. I'd go to New Jersey every day. I'd cross the river and play online. And until, and so first I built up, I deposited about 50 bucks and I ended up building up a little over 2K. Um, And then he let me go to Vegas and use that money to play daily tournaments, but I couldn't play anything above like $50. Mostly he wanted me playing like the $35 tournaments. He said, everything, anything else is too high because you can't afford it yet. And he said, if, if you start winning these, then you can move up. So after I started winning the planet Hollywoods of the world, then I was allowed to play Aria, which is actually my first hand and mob cash. Um, and after I started final tabling those, you know, where second place was however much it was, um, you know, two grand, something like that, um, then I am allowed to start playing those types of tournaments. So he always made sure that I was bankrolled properly. And then when I started, when I took my first kind of shot and started playing my first 1K tournament, I sold a lot of action. Um, and I had people take pieces of, of myself at zero markup, of course, <laughs> because my edge was was zero. Right. But he, he taught me to mitigate risk. He taught me to plan ahead. And he taught me that once you, even if you move up and it's not going well, you have to move back down. No one says that after you've played a 1K, you can't play the $100 anymore. No, you actually should because that's um, – so So I was very conscious of it always. Um, and that way, um, a lot of people look at my results and they say very – I mean, it's very fair. They say, oh, well, how much did she lose? Like, she's probably in the red. No, I'm actually in the black. Um, so I um, – you know, I, I – I, 
because of Eric, I'm in the black. <laughs> I don't think I would have had the discipline myself to stay in the black. <laughs> give me, give me some bankroll management. Give me like Eric. Give me how he would phrase it. Does he have a rule on buy-ins? Like, let, let, no, it's complicated it, as well when you talk about bankroll for someone like yourself or me or someone that is. It, it's different when you're starting. Yeah. Um, it's different when you start, right? Because it's like it's like all right, I have a bankroll, but you really you have other money. Like it's like if you lost your bankroll, you're not like just done x done from the game necessarily. So it's like, how did you did, did you say that? I'm starting with this amount. Did you actually say like all right, I'm going to use total? Like did you have a max? Like what was your? How did you yeah. and plan your bankroll for this poker? I did, yeah, I did have a max. So we agreed that I was going to um, have a certain portion of my book advance that I was going to use for poker. And at the beginning, remember, I didn't even, I hadn't sold my book. So I didn't know how much I was going to sell it for. And the way that book sales work is you don't actually get paid the whole amount. You get it in four different installments and you have agents. So you don't actually get, you subtract 20% from whatever the price is, which you pay to other people. Um, and then you pay your own taxes. So, you know, that it, it, it goes down very, very quickly. Right. Um, but and it's paid out over multiple years. It's not paid out right away. But, and I had, didn't even know what that number was, but we agreed. So my goal was the main event. So I was going to be spending at least $10,000 on that buy-in. Um, and we we agreed, we didn't ever put a specific number, but it was understood that in the lead up, it was also going to be, I, I could lose another 10,000 and that was it. So, okay. so basically, and if I lost it, then I probably shouldn't play the main event yeah. <laughs> because, because that's not very good. Um, but, but we were hoping, so what Eric said is we shouldn't have to do this. Your bankroll should be that initial $50 deposit that you make on your, you know, on poker stars, New Jersey. And then you're going to build money that you won from poker and you're going to put it back into poker. Now for other players, of course, if this is your income, you can't do that because it's not just for, you need a life bankroll, right? So you need, you need something that you, you need to pay your rent. If you have rent, you need to pay your expenses. So there are other things that you have to keep in mind. And I, my goal was only to fund poker through poker, both buy-ins and travel. Travel gets expensive. Yes. So I, I wanted to be self-sufficient in those things of course i mean it was an insane help and, and we had no idea that this was going to happen when um i got sponsored by stars like that's a nice. that's a game changer nice right yeah. all of a sudden i found myself flying to macau i would not have flown to macau without a poker star sponsorship right. but i'm glad i did it's a big part of the, it's a big chapter in the book it was a big part of my experience how did you um, how did you, what about online? Was that, uh, yeah. were you playing cash games as well? Or were you just strictly tournaments the whole way? Strictly tournaments. Um, we had this conversation very early on and Eric said, you have a finite amount of time. Your goal is main event, which is a tournament. Tournaments and cash games are two very different things. So we're going to focus on tournament play exclusively. I now play cash, but in the beginning, I think it was a very right decision to only focus on tournaments because the strategy is different. It's a different game. And if you know zero about poker, um, it will hurt you to start trying to learn two different sets of strategies at the same time. So just like I, at the beginning, I only played no limit. And now I, you know, started learning PLO and 08 and all of these, you know, different variants that I never didn't even know existed back when. Um, and 
it's something that I had to work towards afterwards, but the, the basics had to be in place. And so at the beginning, cash games were not part of it, even though, um, you know, cash games are a really nice way of managing your bankroll <laughs> and something that has a lot less variance than tournaments. And I think if I were to mentor or, you know, if I were to help someone with bankroll management coming up who had different goals, like I had a very specific goal, you know, I'm writing a book, I'm, I'm learning tournament poker. If I were ask, helping someone else with the way that they, um, that they actually manage their own um, bankroll, I would say learning cash games is important because um, tournaments are very high variance. Yeah, that makes, makes a ton of sense. And so now have you played some cash games that you've, uh, that, or that you've sort of uh, become, um, you know, you've, 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 I don't want to say that you've, you've gotten to know tournaments very well. Is it cash games? Is it something you're comfortable with? Do you, do you sit down and play a cash game now and again? Or yeah, you're... I do. I do. I sometimes play cash um, and I, I like tournaments more. Um, they're more fun to me. I like the dynamics. I like the, you know, the changing strategies. I like the changing blinds. All of those things are things that um, appeal to me because I, I feel like it forces me to think. Um, it constantly challenges me. Right. And to me, it's it's a more difficult thing. Um, but I enjoy cash games, too. I mean, cash games have their own sets of difficulties. Um, and I think that they can be a lot of fun. Um, but given, you know, given my druthers, I'd play tournaments. But I think that sometimes if you have a spot in a good cash game, it's stupid to, to turn that down. Yeah. Excuse me. That's that's for sure true. Well, guys, I, we are gonna we we have uh, we still have some time, and I do want to make sure we get some of these questions out. There is going to be a ticket giveaway. We'll do a retweet uh, for that, and I, and I, I've got some more stuff I want to talk about. I do want to make sure we get some of these these uh, questions in. There's some some very interesting ones. And again, uh, is there anywhere else can we tell people where to follow you? We got, we got to get the retweet out, Marie. You got to you got to be eligible for the ticket. Come on, help. Uh, <laughs> All right. Out. All right, hold on, hold on. Let me. I'm going to Twitter. Uh, and I'm going to just give you guys. If you do want to go to our website, it's very well done. Very, very cool. I've never seen the, the pictures are great. I love this. A very, very nice website. So you guys can check that out. You can see her Hendon mob as well. Very impressive. Very. I retweeted. Twitter. Do I have to ask myself a question? Um, if there's something you don't know, <laughs> or if there's something you want to know and, and, and dig deeper into, that, that's good. But I think, who am I? Who yeah, am I? What's the meaning of life? <laughs> yes, but we, we can. I mean, we're, we're tackling we're tackling some of this stuff. Um, is there anything you wanted before we do? Is there in, in terms of getting the book? Where's the best place to people to get it? Um, wh where do you? Yeah. Wh wh what? What? Anything that you would say on the other books? Like, is it, is this Amazon the best place? There's Audible versions. I mean, Amazon is the easiest for a lot of people. I think right now, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and I would say support your local bookstore. There's a website called bookshop.org, which will hook you up with your closest independent bookseller and they're all able to get my book for you. Um, so obviously get it wherever it's convenient for you. I'd be thrilled if you just buy the book um, in any format you'd like, but um if, if I were, if you don't care or if you want to do something that makes a difference to people who aren't just me, I think that supporting your local independent bookstores is a wonderful thing to do. 
That's awesome. Okay. Um, great. Well, there you guys see the different websites. She has websites. She's got all, she's got, she got everything. Wikipedia. She's got the, the, the Instagram. So you, she, which is your favorite of all the social craziness? You like the most to, to do? Um, I do. I mean, I do the, I post the most on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I like them for different reasons. I, I think Instagram's very pretty and it's fun to be able to communicate that way. Um, and Twitter, you know, you can get a lot of information on Twitter. As long as, as long as, let's go back to the beginning of our conversation. As long as you maintain the proper mindset and don't get drawn into webs of negativity, which is very easy to do on Twitter, more difficult to do on Instagram. Yeah. Instagram's a much more positive place. Yeah, it is. It's more of a rabbit hole. I guess they're both kind of rabbit holes. You get in there and, and find yourself uh, spending a lot of time. They're they're great though. They are. So let's take some questions here from. Uh, let's see. We'll start off with you. Uh, e- you're asking, how do you understand when a person is lying? Do you have like a very brief answer on that? What is, what's your, uh, how do you, how do you, uh, any tricks? Bye. No, you, you don't know. Um, people are really, really bad at spotting deception. We're about 50, 50. Um, we, we are, we are pretty, we are pretty crappy at spotting lying. And I've spent enough time with uh, con artists to know just how true that is. Um, and the better the liar, the less you're able to see. I do have a part in my book about tells um, and the eyes are not the window to the soul. You should not be trying to stare someone down. Um, but Something that I write about, and you guys can read this chapter to get all of the nuances, but um, you can uh, pay attention to the hands. So actually, it turns out all the research shows that the hands give off a lot more information than the face. Interesting. Anything in particular, just like if they're nervous, like how they how they move them or movement, motion, how people bet, how they handle their chips, how they handle their cards. Interesting. Okay, take a take a look at that. I want to ask you a question. What do you believe what, out of the poker world, let's just say to you, what has been the most enjoyable and the least enjoyable experiences of poker? Like, what, what do you love about the poker community? And what do you say, man, like, I, this is so fun. I love it. But this is like kind of I wish this would change or this is not yeah. what I like. Well, what I love about it is just how many brilliant, amazing people there are. I mean, you see I've met some of the most interesting people and some of the most brilliant minds that I know in poker and they could do anything in the world. They could do anything they want and they choose to play this game and they love it. Um, And they're great. And they're people, you know, I get a little bit upset when people say, Oh, you know, play poker. Like you, you don't make a difference. Do you know how much poker players have given to charity and, (laughs) and they actually know how to think about it rationally. They know how to evaluate causes. I mean, you, Take someone like Dan Smith, who's done so much good in the world, um, and he's a poker player. And he, you know, he's become very successful and has used that money to make so many people's lives better. Um, and more so than in almost any other profession. I mean, I think that that's inspiring and amazing. And the fact that there are so many people like that, um, to me, it, it just shows what's possible. And I love, you know, I love that there is definitely more of an element of meritocracy in poker than there is almost anywhere else in life. I mean, it's also not meritocratic. Like let's, let's be honest. There are barriers to entry. Like there are, there are lots of things that would help you start playing. But then once you're playing, I mean, there are people at the top of their game who were homeless 
when they were growing up and who had nothing and who started with a $5 bankroll and are now millionaires. And that's not possible in any other profession. Like poker doesn't care where you went to school. It doesn't care what your last name is. It doesn't care what you look like. It just cares how you think. And it rewards good thinking and good decision making. And to me, that's beautiful. And that's one of the things that I love about the game. Um, do I wish it weren't 97% male and 3% female? Yeah, I do. Um, do I wish that at the lowest levels, um, people wouldn't call me everything in the world to my face? You know, I've been called everything, bitch, cunt. I mean, I've been propositioned. People have actually told me how much money they were going to pay me to accompany them to their hotel room. Like, that's not cool. And that happens a lot at the lower levels. Once you get higher up, once you move up in stakes, people start taking, it's a different sort of player. They start taking the game seriously. And even there, you sometimes get shit. Like right. sexism doesn't go away. Um, so do, and I think that people are always asking, oh, why aren't there more women? Because most women come into at that lower level, have a bad experience and never, never go back. I wouldn't have gone back after some of my earliest encounters had I not seen what was possible, had I not had, you know, Eric Seidel standing over one shoulder, Phil Galfond over the other, you know, and, and seen all of these, all of these things that were possible. So I wish that would change. And that has to change from above. It has to change from the floor staff who, when they see something like that, they call it out. Because, I mean, if it happens to me, the poor dealers, do you know what they have to deal with? Yeah. I mean, the floor staff, they can't be like, oh, this, uh, this guy's a regular. He spends a lot of money here. No, you have to be like, get the hell out. This is not acceptable behavior. Um, and I want those norms to change. I want it to become a place that's welcoming for everyone, where people know that there are consequences to not being an asshole. For sure. And where's your favorite place to play poker? Um, in Vegas or in general? Both. Um, so in Vegas, my favorite, I, I have a special place in my heart for the Aria because that's where I grew up <laughs> and they're, and they're so nice and they're always so incredibly welcoming to me. Um, and the, the win encore is also a great poker room. That's my, that's my other favorite. Um, Aria has to win out if I'm choosing one, um, okay. because they've always been so good to me and they've no, they knew me when I was nobody because they let me rail. They let me actually sit behind Eric and all of these other players and look at their cards during tournaments. No. Um, they said, you know, if everyone agrees that it's okay, it's okay. And it's, you know, it's 20 people and they all said, sure. And the fact that I was allowed to do that was just insane. So, yeah. so I love that. My favorite place to play in the world is Barcelona because you're in an amazing city with amazing food and the casino is right on the ocean. Literally, you can go out on break and be on the beach and you can't really beat that. And I, and I love that. And I love being in actual, in an actual real city um, as opposed to Vegas, which is just Vegas um, or Monte Carlo, which is just Vegas <laughs> on the ocean. Yeah. Um, and I think that Barcelona has it all. So if I had to choose where to play every day, it would be Barcelona just in terms of, ambiance but if i had to choose my casino and where they treat the players the best and where the floor staff actually will stand up for you and speak up if they see untoward behavior it would be the aria in vegas and absolutely those are great those are great venues and locations um tell me about your time with star so you were you got sponsored right after that tournament essentially mm -hmm. and then until what you were with them until until the end uh, until the end of 2019 beginning of 2020 something like that um or maybe sometime in 2020. I don't remember. It was um, when we actually parted ways, but it was maybe it was in October of 2020. I don't remember. No, 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 no. no that wasn't. 
that would, that would be, be hard. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it was in October. It must have been. It must have been the end of 2019. Okay. And yeah, because actually the last tournaments I played live, which is um, I was in Vegas in December, um, and I played um, I played Five Diamond and I played Win, and I actually wasn't with Stars anymore. So it must okay. have been right before that, and that was the only tournament I've played without Stars. How was that experience with with them specifically? Because we were there at the same time. I've yeah. now gone to to, uh, to party poker, which uh, <laughs> I'm very happy and love, and I had a great time. You know, Melanie and Scott. I think you worked with, and, and yep. really nothing but good things to say about um experience there and and enjoyed it uh it was you know and, and obviously they are this the largest in terms of numbers and volume and a lot of a lot of positives and now with the, the industry being competitive there's some other really big players um where, where it's good right competition is good for everything so I, I think it's in the best interest for everyone um what what is your what is your moving forward is that something would you like to be sponsored are you looking to do more poker what's your poker appetite nowadays i mean i'm very open-minded if someone were to come up to me and say, Hey, I want to sponsor you do this. I'd, I'd say, yeah, let's do it. You know, I still love poker and I want to play. Um, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know when live poker is going to be safe again. And I think right now would be very irresponsible to, to be playing live. I did right. go to New Jersey um, for the world series to, for a few weeks to play some of the online bracelet events. So clearly I'm still playing and clearly it's something that's still interesting to me, even though I don't like playing online. But I felt like I was in New York and it would just be lazy of me not to go to Vegas. And I had plans to go to Canada, except the border is still closed. So I'm in New York and not able to play any more of the World Series. Is that is that uh, is that something that you I mean, I, I would think that that's almost like a, the perfect combination to be a writer uh, and also play poker because like you could go to a tournament you could write in the morning yeah. at night you could you could kind of you can do both right it's not Absolutely. you don't have to be in an office so it seems like a pretty uh nice nice combination there to go hand in hand and i i still love the game and i still feel like it has a lot to teach me so i wasn't planning on going anywhere i mean i was supposed to i had tickets to to uh fly to la for lapc and ended up not going um and as we know it was one of the last major tournaments before everything shut down um yeah. but i i was a little bit earlier on the risk assessment scale and yeah. realized that it wasn't a good idea have you been have you gone back to russia and have you been to russia in the last i have okay. in the last it, few years i i was there just before literally like when the borders and things were that for the sochi tournament that was my first time in russia so sochi was unbelievable I've never um, been. Very, very, very nice very nice venue and casino and and i loved it there i actually didn't get to go then i was going to go to moscow and um uh St. Petersburg and then did not get to because of yeah. uh, that. So hopefully we'll go back. But uh, any, any uh, you love is Russia. Um, yeah, it's a, your original home. Uh, what What is currently like, what do you love? Is it a place you not a fan? Not really. No, I'm, I'm, a fa I'm not a fan of Russia. And I, I went back because I felt like I should go back to see it. But I am very much not a fan of Putin or what's happening in the country. And I mean, who are we to speak? We're also sliding towards authoritarianism but um that doesn't mean that i i need to look with favor on russia and i'm i'm not a fan of anything that's going on there and it actually scares the crap out of me okay all right well, yeah <laughs> i want to go on politics and all that because i but it's good to know it's like i i really i'm you know it's good to get opinions and people yeah. are that are well in, informed in the the region the area and what's going on so that's uh it's good to kind of have a overview um Let's see other questions. Someone's mentioning about a great article about you on a large Russian language poker site. Interesting. That's nice. 
Yeah, that's good to hear. So sometimes it's I have no idea what it is, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. Any new books in the works? Do you have any other topics, subjects that you're looking at currently? No, I mean, I, I, you know, one thing at a time, I've spent the last three years with my mind on this book. Um, and right now I'm just working on supporting it as best I can. Um, books take a long time. Um, and you have to be really, really sure that a topic is right before you commit to your next project. And I, my mind's just not there yet. So it's going to, it's going to take a little while. It's not like I'm already thinking of the next thing before I finish the last thing. Um, because this is what we were talking about. Mindfulness, focus, <laughs> you have to be, you have to be committed to what you're doing. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what's next. I do have some other um, projects in the works. Um, I will, I mean, I can, I can say that there's something that I'm working on that will be for, um, for the ears only, um, not written, but, it, but it will actually, it will involve writing. It'll be, but it will come out in an audio only format. Um, so I'm working on something that way. And I'm also working on something for the eyes. <laughs> so you'll see it on a screen. <laughs> um, nice. So both of those things will involve writing, but writing in different ways. Um, I can't say any more about either of those yet but so i am working on new things you will see more creative content coming out but i don't yet know what my next book is going to be what is your favorite book and movie <laughs> my favorite book is well it, it depends the book that that's been my favorite for the longest and is still one of my all-time favorites is the little prince by antoine de saint-exupery um i think it's just one of the most beautiful books and such a wonderful guide to life and to how to be a good person um, and how to find your inner child and be curious and be creative um, and how to kind of how to relate to the world. I think I've read it. I don't know how many times and every time I get something new out of it. Um, and I think it's something I recommend to anyone. It's about relationships. It's about, you know, what, what it means to be creative, what it means to be successful. It will help you, I think, reevaluate a lot of your life priorities. Um, in terms of my favorite movie, um, I have a few. Um, the one that's been my favorite since we went with The Little Prince, the one that's been my favorite for the longest, <laughs> for, the, for the longest period of time in my life is The Princess Bride. It's something that I fell in love with when I was a kid. Um, then read the book in uh, my English class in high school. And that was really, that was really cool to actually kind of go through the, that creative process um, and then have watched it so many times since then and always get something new. And as a writer, I love how well-written that script is and just how every single word is, is wonderful. So, so that is one of them, but there are some others. Very cool. Uh, the, those are, those are good choices. Uh, tell me about your website a bit here. Uh, who, who drew the pictures? Cause it's very well done. And also yeah. navigate us around here. What, what is, what's going on here? You have a so, blog. Date, uh, yeah. The, the, the pictures are from my, so I have two best friends. They're my two college roommates. Um, and one of them, Cara Zimmerman, is the one who drew the art on this website. Um, she's a beautiful artist, but she actually works in art. Um, rather than drawing it, she sells it. She's the outsider art specialist at Christie's. So if any of you guys want any advice on outsider art, she's the, she's the person to go to. She's taught me a lot about art. 
Does she actually will draw? She draw. So she drew this and she will she drew draw. This, but she, did, she just did that for me. Okay. She yeah. hasn't said if I want like a custom, you know, poker piece or something, she, she could do it or no. Or she, well, no. it depends how much you're willing to pay her, but you might, I can, I can hook you up. I can uh, well, but, put me in contact. I, I'm looking for like a cool custom art, um, like kind of like a home game with the you cast the characters kind of piece. But I, I love art. My brother-in-law is obsessed with it and yeah. it is cool. It's a whole nother world, but um, that, this is. is very nice. This is, very this comes like this does on all the websites i've seen this has got the different uh, very homey very nice feel to it i wanted it to be different um i haven't kept it up as well as i should so the blog was last updated i think over a year ago um and i'm yeah i don't update it as well as i can um but you can find you know you can find some of my pieces you can find contact information um when i remember i will list the live events i'm doing there um unfortunately now um that's zero because there are no live events happening. Um, but it's a, it's a place where I try. That's my mom oh. <laughs> in Instagram. You had, yeah, that's my mom. What does your Instagram comprise mostly of you, you? You do, is it, it's turned to a lot of poker or do you, are you pretty yeah. active? Do you do, do you do stories and everything? I People do stories. Do. Yeah. Um, I gotta, but I'm going to add you on Instagram. I have you on Twitter. I'm going to, I'm going to check out. I'm, I'm, I need to read these books. I'm fascinated. I wanna <laughs> all, I'm going to order all of the books and I will. Thank you, I, Jeff. I have a problem with it. Maybe the audible would make more sense. Maybe that would be more realistic to, to listen to. I just feel like I haven't really, other than Bill's book, I haven't read a book in a long time to actually go through it. So um, <laughs> I wish I read more because I do enjoy reading it. Just feel like I'm slow at it. And I just, you know, I don't well, know. the last two books, both this one and the confidence game, I recorded myself um, mastermind. I did not because it was my, um, because it was my, first book and I didn't know what I was doing and no one knew if I'd be capable of reading a book. So they didn't even offer. Um, but the other two, I can, I can't vouch for them, but I can at least say that I read them. So they'll be, they'll be read as the author intended. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, that's, well, that's awesome. And and what about, what about your, um, do you have a best Eric Seidel story other than that story? I think you already, you told a great one about the, the lawn, the trash on the lawn. And I could just see that conversation. You must've been so, it's so emotional, right? Like you just take a terrible beat. You got your coach. You want to tell them how I, I can, I know the whole deal. And listen, I call my friends and stuff too. And I get, I get all the time. People send me their, their stuff. And I get like, I actually don't mind it because I think, you know, that there's, but I get it. And I think that's a way better protocol to just be like, nope, don't talk about it. Don't do it. But, um, you know, for me, I, I'm like more of a content story, energy, like energetic energy where it gets thrown around very loosely, as we've, we've said. But I like I like the whole the whole thing. I, I'm just I don't mind it. I don't embrace it, but I, I don't mind it. I, I, just any story, though, like with Seidel, otherwise, like. It was just very interesting or just the way he approaches things. Um, I mean, all story, all, all Eric's stories are interesting. But since we did a bad beat, I'll tell you about the only time in my life where he actually said I was allowed to tell him a bad beat. So this was at LAPC in a few years ago, um, probably 2018. And we were on the bubble and he was following along. Um, he'd, he'd already busted. Um, but I was in and I had a lot of chips 
and he had been following the action. The bloggers were very active and he, you know, he and I were texting hands, you know, during breaks when I had questions and whatnot. It was a very long bubble and I ended up getting all in on, and I had a very, very aggressive player um, two to my left. So my button, his big blind. And he had, he'd been the WPT player of the year, um, the year before, like someone who was, who was, taking full advantage of the bubble. Right. Um, and there was a hand where I, oh, this is going to be a bit of a hand history, just a little bit, where I opened the button, he raised, I re-raised, you know, we, we ended up getting into a bit of it, getting into it a bit pre-flop and we ended up getting it all in. Um, and I had pocket jacks and he had ace five offsuit um, and I flopped top set um, and he, I ended up busting. He, he went runner, runner straight. Um, and this was reported because then everyone starts clapping because I was the bubble girl. And this was a 20,000 or like $22,000 bubble. Yeah, it was a huge are. bubble. Yes. Um, and I would have been the chip leader of the tournament or one of the chip leaders had I actually won this hand. And it was, <laughs> it was obviously reported right away. And Eric texts me. Actually, he called me. He didn't even text. He's like, "Oh my god, you're allowed to talk about this one." Yeah, that's the one you got to talk <laughs> out for, for. For yeah, sometimes you need to vent a little bit. That is because he and he called me. He didn't. I didn't call him. Big like I just bubbled. He saw it because he was updating the the. He was following along. He was refreshing the page, and he calls me. He's like, "Okay, you're allowed to. You're allowed to be mad about this." Was this gentleman, or you can't say? Is this a um, it was um, it was Benjamin Zamani. Okay, yeah, tough, tough, aggressive player. That's uh, yeah, yeah no, it's a, this, I think it's in the. It was either I, yeah, no, it was Ben. It was Ben or Martin Zamani. Oh, I don't remember. There are two Zamanis, yeah, and I don't. I, I'm trying different. to remember which of them it was. Style, similar, similar uh, style. I think, um, I think it was Ben Zamani, but yeah, they they do have similar styles. <laughs> yeah, both, both not afraid to push equity. No, uh, and I knew this. Like I, and the thing is, like. It was, and I had been playing with this person the whole day. Like, I I knew what was happening, and I not once did I think, "Oh my God, maybe he actually has aces." Not one. Like, it was very clear to me that it's not like we were clicking it back. Like, he just right. he was like, "I have ace five, thirty percent have wheels. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna push it, and good luck because I'm not full. I'm just that." Uh, exactly. Yeah. Those are tricky. Those are those are uh, those are intense. I mean, I think that's important to realize to go for it there because you know there are times or me as well, other players like you can really pass spots like that because you know what you're gonna cash if you fold or whatever in this scenario you're gonna you could still win, but to yeah. win that pot you actually could win and like that's and- exactly right. And that was my thought process. Normally, you know, I wouldn't. I, I don't go crazy on the bubble. Um, there's Eric and I, there's another Eric story where I. Um, cashed my first main event. Um, so the next year I didn't have a migraine and I actually cashed. Um, and we were, it was a very, very long bubble. And um, I ran into Patrick Antonius on the bubble um, because they put, they sent us on break on an unscheduled break to count how many players were actually left. Um, and Patrick just was like, Oh, you should be raising any two. No one wants to bust on the bu- bubble of the main event. Like you should be pushing it. I was like, I really need to cash for my book. <laughs> like, I, I'm, 
not going to put that air. I told Eric about this and we, we developed a shorthand. We started calling it Patrick mode, relentless bubble aggression, <laughs> you know, go Patrick channel. Yeah, Patrick. That's, Patrick that's mode. Awesome. Did you, so, but did you, how, how were you one of the, did you have a lot of chips at that time? Then? No, I had, I, I had a middle middling stack. So okay. this is, this is kind of the, this is the question, right? And I actually ended up online on the bubble anyway of the main event, but I survived, <laughs> but the the idea is like if i don't have that many chips i'm not going to take a spot like that because what am i like what am i actually gaining i'm losing the the min cash which is huge in this case it's not a 1k like you're making over $10,000 from your 10k buy in um for the for the LAPC right. like it's a huge bubble and what am I actually winning? In this particular case, I had a lot of chips. And so that would have put me in a position to not just make a deep run, but like to actually have a shot at a final table at this event. So I'm going to take that spot. Um, I'm not going to be afraid to bust on the bubble. You can't be. Right. You you shouldn't. It's it's easier said than done. And it's hard. Like it, you know, you really start looking at poker and tournaments and the the fact of getting those top threes versus like, you know, a lot of players or I think a lot of people get stuck like that where they're like, they're in the seven or eighth or ninth to like the, 15th range and that that's a dangerous zone because although it looks good you're deep and it's fun you really do want to be the one that has the sure. chance that those because you'd rather get one or two first through thirds and just get 15th or 20th all the time than get like you know nine ten nine through 12th the majority which you know that that's a dangerous zone to be in and and i, I it's hard you know it's a, it's a, to get the gears and to do the right moves in those spots like that's where the best players in the world really they thrive yeah. and they're, they're not afraid to, to go for it. Um, I know you have, you have other stuff. Oh, yeah. We're kind of running out. Well, give me the best day of your life. That's a question. That's a- <laughs> the best day of my life. Um, let's see. I guess the day I was born because otherwise we would not be here. <laughs> we wouldn't have it. We wouldn't be there. That's that. There you go. So that answers that. Any other, any other things you want to chat about? I'm going to queue up this uh, giveaway. We'll let you call it in here in a second. Uh, any, no, any other things coming great. I mean, listen, we, yeah, we covered everything from birth to now. Yeah. I think we did a very thorough job. Um, this was a lot of fun, Jeff. Yes. I hope you, you like the book when you I listen gonna, to it. <laughs> I'm going to read slash listen to it. I, I will. I want to. Li- I'm going to listen to all of them. That is that is on my. How long are the audibles of the books? Roughly each one. I have no idea, but someone who listens to the audible can tell you. It's, it's, <laughs> it's something. Uh, it's it's something. It's it's they're they're not. It's not. I mean, these are these are good sized books, but they're not ridiculously no no they're 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 in the the wheelhouse okay well yeah thank you for the questions i think you know maria can go ahead and there's maybe she'll answer some if we didn't get to some or she can take a look if any stand out if she gets a chance but we did answer some and we covered a lot for sure so let's do this uh let's do this retweet you tell me when someone's gonna win a ticket courtesy of party poker and you so tell me when when Ben has been called and uh, Glowbox L is going to win the ticket. So congrats to them. We will message them and we'll thank Maria for her time. I appreciate you being on here. And again, check her out Instagram. She has a website. She's doing, she's a blog. She writes the New Yorker. She's got bestsellers. She's got things happening. Give her a follow, check in with her. Thank you for the time. And I'm sure we'll battle hopefully post COVID. I hope so. so. I hope so, Jeff. Take care. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, that's Maria Konnikova, number 82 in the books. We have number 83 on Wednesday, and we have Antonio Spandiari next week and some other guests coming too. So we got a lot on the horizon. We'll see you guys soon. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode. It was brought to you in partnership with Party Poker. Go to PartyPoker.com to play tournaments, cash games, and improve your poker game. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear all of my future episodes.